Good morning. Today I'll be reading from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 and 21. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us all while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules us instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks, Aaron. Good morning, everyone. My name's Rob. If we haven't met before, I'm so glad that each of you are here today. And maybe since it is Mother's Day, uh, have you heard about the husband who gave his wife a card on Mother's Day? You know, she's not his mom, but he wanted to do the right thing. So he gave her this beautiful card that said, I would climb the highest mountain for you. I'd swim the deepest ocean. I'd give my very life for you. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. And she said, oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you. You know what I'd really love? I'd love you to help me clean out the garage today. That would show me love. What? I mean, come on. It's your day. You need to relax. We don't need to slave away in the garage. No, I'd really like that. Oh, you're killing me. Right? I know. Right there. See, it's easy to say, oh, I'd give my life when we don't think anyone's going to actually ask us to give our life. But if it's true that love is demonstrated through sacrifice and the giving of one's life would be the ultimate sacrifice, then giving up one's life is also the ultimate expression of love. That was the case in August of 1987. The sun was just holding off dusk in Detroit when uh, Northwest Airlines flight uh, 255 was taxiing down the metro airport. The 155 passengers and crew were getting set to head to Phoenix, Arizona. The pre-flight spiel came on, you know the one, you know, this is how you do a seatbelt. Uh, where, and then, you know, make sure your tray tables and seat backs are in their upright and locked positions. If the cabin loses pressure, those little oxygen masks will come down. They might not inflate, but be sure to put your own mask on before helping someone else. 
And of course, in case of water emergency, your seat cushion is somehow a flotation device. <laughs> I know. May, may they didn't say somehow. So anyway, then you hear flight crew prepare for takeoff. And as soon as that everyone was buckled in, they sped off down the runway. And the pilots noticed just a little bit that the airline liftoff was taking just a little bit more or just a little bit longer than normal. But they didn't really have time to react. As soon as they left the ground, the plane rolled from side to side. The first time it rolled to the left, and the left wing hit a lightning rod pole, severing the wing and spilling out jet fuel. Then it tipped violently to the right, and it took out the roof of a rental car building until it went back and forth and crashed on a nearby highway and broke apart, bursting into flames. It was an incredible disaster. All six crew members died, and 148 of 149 passengers died too. There's one, one little girl who survived. Four-year-old girl named Cecilia. Because Cecilia survived because as the plane was crashing, Cecilia's mother took her own seatbelt off, turned around and knelt in front of her daughter, putting her arms and her body around her, shielding her from the flames and the shrapnel. She refused to let her go. Her mom gave the ultimate sacrifice, and it, I believe it was the ultimate expression of love. Anyone, I think, who's a parent, and probably those who aren't, can see how someone would give their life for their child. But as we consider this topic that we're looking at called brand new and what it means for the resurrection in our everyday lives, what Jesus' resurrection means in our everyday lives, what we want to look at today is what effect does Jesus' sacrifice actually have What's it supposed to do in our life? The, the non-churchy way to say this would be like, if a Christian tells me that Jesus died for me, that sounds nice, but I have no idea what to do with it. I think the churchy way to say it is not so much how Jesus died for us or how his life is given for us, but really why. What's the purpose? What are we redeemed for? I think Cecilia would probably say it like this. If I know that my mom died for me out of love, but I'm an orphan now. What am I supposed to do? So our reading today contains some of the most profound and studied scripture in the whole Bible. And I'm not sure how these terms went over in the first century, but I know in the 21st century, a lot of people find them odd or old or outdated and backwards even. And yet, I mean, just think about the, some of the words that are used. When's the last time you used transgression? Justification? Sin or righteousness? They're just not words we use very often. And yet, the temptation is, even if you follow Jesus, to sort of ignore the words, and the default for people who don't is to really ignore the words, but if we do, we miss the picture that God uses to paint 
the brokenness of the world and the brokenness that's in us and the beautiful reality that we can experience. So if we go on this journey for a few minutes and look at these verses and what they actually can mean in our everyday life, I think we'll see that beautiful reality. Paul, this, Paul is this religious scholar and teacher. He's called a rabbi, and he has this personal encounter with Jesus after his resurrection, physically sees him, changes his whole life, and he says, spends the rest of his life telling people all over the place who Jesus is and what he's done and why it matters. And so he goes to these people in Rome and he says, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight because of what Jesus has done, made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we can now stand and confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. What I think it means is that Jesus' sacrifice means that we can come to God by grace. We can come to God by grace. It says we have peace with God. Now, just think for a moment on what, what you think of when you hear the word peace. And because, you know, you probably have a better answer than I do, why don't you share it? When you think of the word peace, what comes to mind? Calm. Calm comes to mind. Sure. What else? Content. Ooh. I have peace inside. Unafraid. Relaxed and restful. I just want some peace and quiet on Mother's Day. Serenity. Anything else? Those are all good, by the way. Resolution. Yeah, sometimes I think of like ending of war with peace. And the people in the first century of Rome would actually think that because the first emperor of Rome instituted this thing called Pax Romana, which was the Roman peace, which meant that there was relative stability and no giant conflict in the entire Roman Empire, as long as you didn't take off Rome. And that was a lot of what you've said is what people think of with peace, but actually it means so much more than that. Think of when you've been in a conflict with someone that you care about and you come back together. Maybe you're reconciled or you reunite because someone's had a change of mind, a change of action, and there's been authentic forgiveness. That's also peace. There's also a Jewish understanding of peace where there would be blessing and wholeness and healing. And so God is saying all of that happens because of what Jesus has done. In the creation story that we looked at a few weeks ago, the first humans rebelled against God's only like one command. There was only one, and they rebelled against it, and then God pursued relationship with them. He patiently asked questions of them, showing that his attitude towards humans hadn't changed just because they'd done wrong. Think about that. Some beliefs about God, some Christian beliefs about God emphasize that Jesus' death was necessary to appease God's wrath. 
Maybe you've heard that before. And I, I did a study on this. God's wrath is mentioned in the Bible. It's never mentioned in connection to Jesus' death. Furthermore, when we emphasize that one, we minimize God's forgiveness and almost set up this division between God the Father as all justice and God the Son as all love. But God's love is his fundamental attribute, which means everything flows from it. So even the hard attributes of God, like his holiness, his jealousy, and his wrath, have to be filtered, have to come through his love. Which means that we can approach God by grace. It's not a love that dismisses sin, but it is a love that forgives it. Paul said it like this really clearly in his second letter to the Corinthians. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God. What God has done through Christ is Jesus' death has covered our sin and it's removed it as an obstacle of coming to God. On the Day of Atonement is this big, huge Jewish day. It's, um, I think you can read more about it in Leviticus 16, I think. And it's this day where there's two animals, two goats are these substitutionary sacrifices. One is where all of the sins of the people are confessed on this animal, and then it's sent away. It's called the scapegoat. The other is the sacrifice, and the blood is sprinkled for the forgiveness. And Jesus' death did both of those things. One covered her sin, the other sent it away. So when God forgives, he's canceling the debt. If you've ever overdrafted on your credit card, and they're like, all of a sudden you get these nasty phone calls, it's like the nasty phone calls just stop because the debt's paid. Or if you have a lost friend that just won't reach out to you, and you've tried and tried and tried, and it's like you gave up, and all of a sudden they come back. And they admit what they've done to hurt you or what's wrong. They ask for your forgiveness, and they want to be in your life again. That's the kind of thing that's happening here. So you and I, because of what Jesus has done, we have access at any time to the all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God of the universe. At any moment. We can come to him, and we can come to him by grace. He's not angry. He longs to be with us. We don't have to have fear or reservation. So, how often do you go to him? What's your attitude when you do? I often think, God's probably disappointed with me. Because it's, you know, it's been a while. I think some of us are scared to come to God because we know that when we come to his presence that we will be seen in all of his brilliant light. Like there's no hiding in God's presence. We're totally exposed. And most of us don't like to be totally exposed. But we have to remember that when we come to him by grace, we are seen by him through grace. We're seen by him through grace. I was thinking about how I could talk about this, and I, I found this story that happened during the Vietnam War. There was this young lieutenant who was sent to the, 
to the war. And he had this unit of new recruits that he was leading into battle. And so his first job was to accomplish their missions, but his next job was to protect his unit. And he was doing really well for several weeks until they got ambushed. And in the jungles of Vietnam, chaos ensued. And he was able to lead, even through the fireflight and the shadows in the, in the jungle, he was able to lead them into this trench, this, his whole unit except for one, into this trench where they could wait for backup. And so from this place where they were safe, they were hearing the shouts of pain of their soldier. And they knew that any attempt to rescue him would certainly be a suicide mission. But after several minutes, the young lieutenant, he couldn't take it anymore. He knew he had a job to do, so he crawled out of that space and he, he got to his soldier finally who'd been severely wounded and unable to walk, and he lifted him on his back, and he ran him back to the trench. And right before he got there, he was hit and collapsed on the ground. The unit was able to bring the wounded soldier in, and he was saved. But the lieutenant lay lifeless. Eventually, the, the wounded soldier came back to the United States, and was near the town where the lieutenant's parents were. And so they invited him to dinner. They wanted to meet this young man who their son had saved. And so they prepared this beautiful meal and had everything set. And when the guy showed up, he was obviously drunk. And very, very... Uh, short with his answers to their questions. And then when he would talk and initiate, he would give these crass and obnoxious jokes. I mean, obviously hurting, but he showed no gratitude for the sacrifice that the son had made. And the parents tried and tried and tried, and their efforts just went completely unrewarded. And so as the young man left, the dad closed the door and as the door shut, the mother just collapsed in tears and said, to think that our son had to die for him? That's the other thing, I think, that keeps us from being seen by God through grace. Is that then we've got to admit something about ourselves and about the sacrifice. Because no one really, I mean, even Paul says this, it's unlikely that someone would die for a righteous person. And by righteous, it's not just morally upstanding. It means someone who has their life integrated. There are people that we respect or admire. We, he's saying we probably wouldn't just give our life to res, because we respect or admire someone. Though maybe we'd be willing to do it if we saw someone as truly good. In the Bible, good means like someone who gives life that gives life. This is someone we love. Maybe someone would give their life to someone we love. For this young wounded soldier to accept the sacrifice of the lieutenant would mean that he was worthy of that sacrifice. Maybe this soldier just thought, the lieutenant died out of duty because he had to, not because I was worth it. And I think some of us feel the same way about the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. I must not be worthy of that. 
But consider the words that Paul uses in this. Well, we were utterly helpless. There was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. We were sinners, he says. Sinners are people who miss the mark. They're someone who try at something and don't quite make the standard. Or they are sometimes referred to as sinners as ungodly people, people that are rejecting God. Or even that we were enemies of God, actually hostile to him. That's what he's saying. That's when Christ died for us. Not when our good deeds finally tipped the scales out of our bad deeds, Not when we made a little bit of improvement, but when we had no ability to fix it, when we were helpless and showing no interest. So Jesus Christ died for us, not because we were good or right or deserving, but because Jesus was good and right and just. Because he loved us. He saw us as worthy of that sacrifice. Maybe we refuse to acknowledge that. But I think the most unfortunate part of refusing to acknowledge that or really really thinking about that sacrifice is that we miss that Jesus is the one who makes us worthy. He deems us worthy, calls us worthy. And he makes us right. So actually, because of what Christ has done, when God sees you in his grace, through his grace, what it means is he doesn't see your list of wrongs. He doesn't see the number of times you've been disinterested or rejected him. He doesn't look at your baggage of what we would call sin. He sees you as sinless as his son. I want you to think about what it would be like to look at someone who you love who has a list of wrongs and not see it. To approach a friend who you care about but makes a lot of mistakes and not see any of those mistakes. It's not an excuse for abuse. It's the reality of how God sees us. And if we don't get this, guess what? The Bible gives picture upon picture upon picture to describe this. In Jeremiah, it says that God forgets our sins and remembers them no more. Maybe you've heard like, oh, just forgive and forget. You know, that's what God does. I don't want to forgive and forget. That person did a lot wrong to me. No, God forgives and chooses not to remember. There's a difference. Isaiah says that God puts our sins behind his back. Or in another place in Isaiah, it says that he sweeps them away like the clouds. And think about when it's, when it's cloudy and you're outside doing a, a project and you see the storm clouds roll in and there's a little bit of you that's like, oh. And then all of a sudden, they just leave. And that, ah, oh. that's, that's, God takes them away. Micah says that God buries our sins in the depths of the sea. And the psalmist says that God removes our sin as far as the east, east from the west. Now think about that, because, you know, I'm from the north, so I'm like, why didn't he say God removes our sin from the north as to the south? As far as the north is from the south. Anybody know? Start going north on the globe, and what happens when you hit the south? North Pole. 
you start going south. And then as soon as you hit this point in the south, then you start going north. I mean, it's only a half a world away. Now, start going east. When do you run into west? You never run into west. And when you go west, you never run into east. God is trying to give us this picture of how far he has removed our sin from us. Infinite. I mean, half a world away is a lot, but infinite. That's what Jesus sacrifice, that's what we can do with it. We can actually accept that God sees us this way and, crazy thing, we could actually ask him if we could see others this way too. Imagine how your relationships would be transformed if you saw others this way. Lastly, I think this passage shows us that Jesus' sacrifice means we can live with God in grace. We can live with God in grace. What I think this means is what Romans 10 and 11 says. It says, since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Now we can rejoice in this wonderful relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. When Jesus first comes on the scene in his public ministry, two people who are following this other rabbi named John the Baptist say, look, there's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. And those two, named John and Andrew, they start going up to Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, what are you seeking? And they're like, rabbi, we want to know where you are. And, and so he calls them seekers. And then those seekers continue to follow, and Jesus says, follow me. And so follower or disciple is another name for students. So Jesus has these seekers who become these students. And then he says, follow me later and I will make you fish for people. And he invites them into his work. They become servants. John 15 says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Because friends know everything that I know from the Father. I've shared it with you. There's this progression, even, even in the three years that Jesus was on this earth with his disciples, that they were more than seekers and more than students and more than servants. They were his friends. Moses is called a friend of God. Abraham is called a friend of God. And Jesus says, we are now called friends of God. Think about the best friends that we have. Do you ever feel pressure to have to say something to a best friend? Or just enjoy the peace of silence? Do you feel like, you know, with a best friend, there's this pressure that with one mistake, you could lose it? No. Or that you have to earn your status with that friend? No, you're already there. Sometimes I think that we can do that with friends, but somehow we just can't figure out how to do that with God. It's like we come to him by grace, and we accept, even if we can accept that we are seen through grace, then we turn around and live the rest of the week as if we're orphans. Like, we're all by ourselves. We're totally alone. Or at least powerless. Not friends. And yet... We can't ever fall into that trap that thinking that 
just because God, we come to God by grace that we don't need his grace later. It's almost like, you know, this summer, we have access to Valley Fair. And so my, my nieces get Valley Fair season passes. It's almost like we think God's grace is like a season pass at Valley Fair. Just go with me for a second. Okay? Because they're extremely valuable, right? <laughs> yep. And, and we need them, so we need to keep them safe. But unless we're going to Valley Fair, we better keep it locked up. That's how some of us think of God's grace. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to use it when I need it, and it'll, it'll be really good when I, eat, when I do. But when I'm not going, then I just got to keep it locked up. I don't want to lose it. God's grace is always available at every moment for us to live in him and with him. It's not by our works, it's by God's work through us. We aren't alone. It's, it's almost like, if that were the case, that it was like that past, then Cecilia's mother's sacrifice just meant she was going to save her life. And it was okay if she stayed in the ICU alone as an orphan for the rest of her life. That's how some of us think that God saves us. Just to be in the ICU for the rest of our lives alone. And we'll get to be with him someday. But God wants so much more than that for us. He gives us his Holy Spirit, reminding us that we have his presence and his grace at every moment of every day. We are never alone. And guess what? Cecilia, that little four-year-old girl, she was never alone. She was not alone when her mother gave her life for her. She was not alone when the, when the firefighter, John Thede, combing through the wreckage, saw this little arm hanging out and this whimper of like almost like a toy doll. And he pulled her out of there brought her to the hospital, she was not alone. Her grandfather came and identified her because she wasn't alone. She had a little chip on her tooth before the accident and he said, no, 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 that's, that's my, my granddaughter. She wasn't alone when her aunt and uncle brought her to the deep south to kind of be away from all the media, to have a family, to raise her. She wasn't alone. In fact, she kept in contact with not just that now lieutenant firefighter, but hundreds of people who lost family members in that accident. She knew that her life was intrinsically tied to that. And yet, rather than being a curse and a scar, she accepted this. She continued to write to them. She actually got to meet Lieutenant John Theed face to face when he watched her walk down the aisle 25 years later. She was never, ever alone. She accepted that her life had been saved for far more than simply existing, but that she was rescued to be a sign of hope and a sign of grace and a sign of peace. Not just for herself, but for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other hurting souls. Do you see that you and I are saved 
in the same way that Jesus gave his life for you and I, that we can accept what he's done as a sacrifice for us. And when we do, then we can come to God by grace and we can be seen by God through grace and we can live with God in grace all the time to be this sign of hope and peace and life for hundreds of other hurting souls, all the people that you see, all the people that you interact with. Truly a light of life and hope. Would you pray with me? God, on a day when we celebrate life and celebrate moms and celebrate you, we talked a lot about death because it's through your death that we have real life. I pray that we wouldn't be satisfied with just existing on this planet or thinking that if we love you that someday we'll get to go to heaven to be with you, but that eternal life starts now. God, that we can come to you at any moment in any time and we can come through your grace, by your grace, and that you can see us as though we've never sinned. God, we know we sin. We admit that we reject you, that sometimes we're not interested in you, that we've done things that think that we're not worthy of your love, but you demonstrate your love and our worthiness of that love through your son and his sacrifice. I pray that we would receive that today. If we've never received that, I pray that we would. And for those of us who have, I pray that we would truly live into it, God, that we could not just be seen as though we're sinless, that we could see others in the way that you see them, as though they've never sinned. That our life, too, could be a sign of peace and hope for hundreds and hundreds of others. Speak to us, Holy